All right, today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, oh, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then we'll look at a second passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and both of these passages can be found beginning on page 2 of the Blue Pew Bible. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and I'll invite you to stand as we read God's word as we stand in his presence and as we honor him as we read his word. Genesis 2, 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And let's read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, sh will, you, will you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was just read. Now we are asking for help, help to understand, help to apply, help to live out this word. And so I pray for your spirit to now accompany the preaching of your holy word, that you might be glorified, that your church might be built up and that the hope of the gospel might resound, not just in this room, but through our lives, wherever you send us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the, jo uh, the joys of parenthood has been to share and to enjoy stories with my kids. Now, that could come in the form of sharing movies that I grew up watching. Uh, my, my oldest is now at an appropriate age to be able to watch some of my favorite movies. So we, we started the um, Star Wars trilogy, and of course, I'm looking forward to sharing the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy with her as well. So you know, as, as the kids get older, you can be able to show them uh, some of these movies. But you know, even, even way before that, at a very early age, 
I've been able to share stories through books, through bedtime reading. And before long, my oldest grew a real taste for good storytelling. I remember whenever I would start a new book, she would ask, Daddy, what's the problem? What's the problem? And that was really, in her childlike way, her attempt to identify the primary conflict in the narrative. She wanted to know what is the problem. Because even little children know that all good stories have a problem that need to be resolved. And so when she grew up old enough to begin to write her own stories, and she would come uh, to, to show them to me, then she knew well enough that, that there needs to, the plot needs to revolve around the problem. So I would just ask her, so what's your story about? What's the problem? And then she would have a clearly laid out problem that would be all sorted out by the end. That's what makes for a good story. And that, my friends, is why the Bible's overarching narrative is such a good and compelling story. It's no surprise that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. According to research that was put out last year by the British and Foreign Bible Society, an estimated 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold throughout time. Five billion. I mean, no other book even comes close to that. So I would argue that that's because the Bible's central plot revolves around a problem that is universally recognizable and relatable. No matter what time period a person lives in, no matter what culture they come from, no matter the life experience, everybody everywhere who hears the storyline of Scripture will recognize themselves in this story we can relate to the central conflict. We can identify with the problem. And that's why the Bible offers such a good and compelling story for all of us. You know, any worldview, any religion, any philosophy worth consideration needs to offer an explanation for what is wrong with the world. How did we get here? Why is there so much suffering? Why do people hurt each other? Why are we so selfish? Why do natural disasters occur and, and wipe out hundreds to thousands of lives? Just, just read the headlines in just this past week. Wars and rumors of war, senseless killings, the exploitation of the young, the weak, and the vulnerable, scandals and smear campaigns. I mean, you just can't deny that this world has problems. If your story, that is the overarching story that you understand yourself to be living in, if your story doesn't have an adequate answer for why bad things happen, then perhaps you're in the wrong story. I would commend to you the story of the Bible, the Christian story. Consider the Christian explanation for what's wrong with the world and see if that actually corresponds with your own experience. See if you can recognize yourself in this story. So this morning, friends, we are in Genesis chapter 3, and this is where the Bible gets straight to the point and answers, what's the problem? Last week, we ended Genesis 2 with the first couple, happily married, naked, and not ashamed. But in just a few verses, in chapter 3, verse 7, we find them naked, ashamed, and attempting to cover themselves up. 
something happened. Within just those few verses, something happened, something that can explain all the human suffering, strife, and sadness in this world. So let's consider what happened. What's the problem? Let's consider the problem by walking through chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And as we do so, I want us to consider five movements as we go through this narrative. If you want to follow along, look in your, look in your bulletin. You'll find an outline there. The five movements, the five points we have here is first, the serpent's crafty lie. Second, the woman's creeping doubt. Third, the tree's central significance. Fourth, the couple's costly choice. And fifth, the couple's cheap covering. So those are the five movements as we go through this text. Let's begin with the serpent's crafty lie. Listen with me again in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, one thing we've already noticed as we've been studying Genesis is the use of Hebrew wordplay. That's where the author uses two Hebrew words that sound similar enough to indicate that there's some kind of connection between the verses or the passages. So commentators point out that Genesis 2 ends in verse 25 with the Hebrew word naked, arumim, arumim, which sounds a whole lot like the word for crafty that you find here in verse 1, arum, arumim, arum. That wordplay there signals not only a transition into a new scene in the story with a connection there, but there's also a contrast being made between the couple's innocence, symbolized by that nakedness in verse 25, and now contrasted with the serpent's cunning, his craftiness. Now, who is this serpent? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, it's identified as Satan himself. Now, I think it's rather significant, though, that the serpent here in verse 1 is described as a creature that the Lord God had made, emphasizing for us that Satan is still a created being. He's not the yin, the God's yang. And God and Satan are not like these two rival dualistic powers representing good and evil. No, Satan is a creature like us. But he's not like us in that he was created as an angel to serve the Lord God in his heavenly abode. Now, Genesis doesn't address his fall into sin and rebellion, but other scriptures do hint at a rebellion against God by angelic beings, which resulted in all of them being cast down to earth, and Satan was chief among those angelic rebels who became what the New Testament later would describe as demons or evil spirits. Now, all of that, that whole rebellion, that whole being cast to earth, all happened prior to Genesis chapter 3. Just Genesis is not focusing on that event. It's focusing here on the creation of, of the earth and, and of mankind. So here, Satan is introduced in the form of a serpent using crafty lies to call into question the wisdom of God. You see, the word crafty is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer more generally to wisdom. So the word here in Hebrew is, is not necessarily a negative word. It's just, it could just be, mean cleverness or, or wisdom. But you couple, you couple that 
with the observation later on in verse 6 where the woman sees that the tree is desirous to make one wise. And what that suggests for us is that the devil was tempting Eve with his craftiness to not just disobey God's rules, but to distrust God's wisdom. Can you really trust God's wisdom behind his rules? Maybe, maybe you actually know better. Maybe you're wiser than him. Now just consider the questions that he actually poses to the woman. Look, look again at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, the serpent, he's crafty enough to know that the most effective lies always, the most effective lies always carry a hint of the truth. There's always some truth mixed in there. And so he takes God's true words and he exaggerates them. Compare his question here in verse 1 to what God actually said back in chapter 2, verse 16. If you have your Bibles open, look, look at verse 1 and then look at verse 16 in the earlier chapter. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, notice with me what the serpent is doing. God said that you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except one. But the serpent asks, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he's doing? He's trying to give this impression that God is stingy, selfish, unwilling to share good things. He said, the, the devil's crafty lie is aimed at getting Eve to doubt the goodness of God. He's trying to portray God as this harsh and, and restrictive cosmic killjoy. He wants to plant seeds of doubt in the woman's mind so, so that she starts questioning God's motives and doubting the goodness of his rules, the goodness of his heart, really. Now, so listen to how the serpent responds after Eve's uh, initial attempt to correct him. Listen, just jump down to verse 4. This is the serpent responding. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, that's a direct uh, repudiation of what God actually said in chapter 2. God said in chapter 2 that if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. But Satan said, you will not surely die. His lie is aimed at getting Eve to disregard God's warnings, to believe that disobedience won't result in judgment. And I, I find it actually quite interesting that the first doctrine, the very first doctrine to ever be denied in human history is the doctrine of divine judgment. You will not surely die. God will not carry out his threats. Oh, that is, that's a very attractive lie. There is something appealing in the idea that God, in the end, will always relent, that he won't send anyone to hell, that he's just way too loving for that. I mean, come on, that, that is appealing. We all want to live in a world where our actions bear no consequences, where there is no final judgment waiting for us. 
But then we quickly realized that we would only actually want that if that only applied to us and to our own actions. We, it would actually be horrible if no one's actions ever had any consequences. It would actually be hell if everyone could just do whatever they wanted and get away with it. And so we quickly realized that, well, divine judgment is not as bad of a, as of a thing as we initially thought it was. But at this point in the story, the serpent's crafty lies do maintain a certain appeal for Eve He's getting her to distrust God's wisdom, to doubt God's goodness, to disregard God's warnings, and to deny his words, what he actually said. Eve is starting to wonder if God really does have her best interest in mind and whether or not she needs to take matters into her own hands. That's what's going on. And that leads to our second point. The second point is the woman's creeping doubt. And you can see signs of this if you carefully analyze her response to the serpent in verse 2. The woman is trying to correct the serpent, trying to defend God, but she makes the same error of exaggerating God's words. Listen to what she says in verses 2 to 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice, notice how when quoting God, she subtracted from God's word. She leaves out the words, surely and every, that you would find if you compare it to verse 16 in chapter 2. God said there, you may surely eat of every tree, meaning that there's a whole lot of freedom, there's a whole lot of goodness available to his people, yet there's no emphasis of that in her response. Her view of God's goodness is subtly beginning to change. And then, she not only subtracted the God's word, she went around and she added to God's word. She added, neither shall you touch it. Now, God never said that. He only said you cannot eat of the tree's fruit. That slight addition about touching reveals that she's already accepted a harsher view of God. And then, she not only subtracted and added, she softened God's word. Notice how she said, lest you die. She left out the word, surely. God said, you shall surely die But in her response, she softened the certainty of death as a consequence of disobedience. And notice that emphasis on the location of the tree. She says it's in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden. She probably thought that its central location in the garden meant that it's special. It must be God's best tree, but for some reason, he's holding it back from me. He's holding back his best. Do you see how the serpent has poisoned her mind with a venomous lie? With just one question, he got her to question if God really loves her, if God really has her best in mind. She used to think that, but she's not sure anymore. Doubt has crept in. And friends, I would contend 
that we are more susceptible to these kinds of crafty lies and temptations when we ourselves are not being careful with God's Word. When we subtract from His Word or try to add to it or try to soften its harder edges, the less careful that we are, the less precise we are in our study or in our teaching of God's Word, then the more susceptible we are to accepting minimized or modified views of God. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Eve. because She wasn't there to hear God's original command. It was actually up to Adam to pass along God's word, but apparently he wasn't too careful in the teaching of God's word. So think about that. If you have a responsibility to teach God's Word to others, whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, you're a discipler, you're a Christian parent, you got to pay careful attention to rightly handle God's Word, to carefully pass it down to others. You can see here the consequences of not doing so. Now, when Eve added to God's word, you know, about not touching the tree, I think it's fair to assume that she had good intentions. She was trying to set up guardrails to keep herself from disobeying. She was probably thinking, okay, if God's rule is don't eat from the tree, then I'm not even going to get near it. I'm not even going to touch that thing. But the problem is, if you're not careful to prioritize God's Word and to carefully study it, then that line between God's rule and your rule eventually gets blurred. And eventually, in your mind, your rule becomes God's rule. And so for Eve, her personal rule of not touching the tree became, in her mind, God's rule. That's His command. That's what He wants. And that is how legalism entered the world. What is legalism if not supplanting God's rules with man-made rules? God's word says to keep myself sexually pure, then I'm not even going to date. God's word says to guard my, my thought life, well, then I'm not going to watch you know, any R-rated movies. Okay, well, that's that's fine and well as a personal rule of life. If that's going to help you to obey God's word, well, then that's fine. That's a good intention. You want to obey God. But legalism is the taking of that personal rule, blurring it with God's rule, and now treating your rule with the same binding authority as the word of God, and now holding others to that exact same standard. Christians should not date. Christians don't watch R-rated movies. That's how you get legalism. And it's been around since the very beginning. And it all stems from not carefully studying God's Word, not knowing it well enough to distinguish God-given authoritative rules from our personal man-made ones. Friends, Try to put yourself now in Eve's shoes. She's now developed a legalistic mindset. 
and an over-exaggerated view of God's strictness. And the serpent's lies are beginning to poison her view of God, causing her to doubt his goodness, to doubt his love. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Anyone's experience? Sadly, that ancient lie continues to poison human hearts, injecting a creeping doubt towards God within each of us. Now, after sensing this doubt creeping up, the serpent strikes again. So in verse 5, he says openly what she was probably already thinking in her mind, that the reason that God is holding back this tree is because he doesn't want to share the joy of being God. Listen to verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent is implying that God is keeping back this knowledge from you because he's worried that you might one day supplant him. He's afraid that you might ascend too high above your station and one day take his place. That's why he's holding you back. That's why he's keeping you from his best, from the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? That sounds like something that God should just share with us. Well, why would God keep that from Adam and Eve? Does he want them just to live in ignorance of what's right and wrong? That's a good question. It leads us to our third point, to consider the tree's central significance. What does this tree of the knowledge of good and evil signify? What does it represent? Well, friends, I'd say that it's less about knowing the difference between good and evil and more about determining the difference. You see, ancient readers would have understood the expression, the knowledge of good and evil, as referring to a particular type of knowledge that confers to you independence and autonomy. So later on in Deuteronomy, Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, prior to entering into the promised land, Moses reminds the Israelites that the former generation died in the wilderness because they refused to trust God to enter into the promised land the first time around. But now God has promised that your, quote, little ones, your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, They shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it, the promised land. So Moses is saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that children don't have this particular kind of knowledge, the knowledge of good or evil. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't know right from wrong. Any parent knows that children from very early on, they know know when they're doing something wrong. But in this sense... And the way the Bible is using it, it means that those children are not independent and autonomous from their parents and the decisions of their parents. So it wasn't up to these children to refuse to go into the promised land the first time around, which is why they're not being held responsible for that and why they get a second chance to go in. So in saying that they have no knowledge of good or evil, Moses is depicting those children as utterly dependent. They utterly depend upon their parents. So then, 
to gain this knowledge is to gain a form of independence, autonomy. To possess the knowledge of good and evil is not about knowing right from wrong, but about deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. I really like how Vaughn Roberts puts it in his book, God's Big Picture. He says Adam and Eve were not just guilty of law-breaking, but law-making. They were trying to usurp God's authority as the lawmaker. They were trying to be like God as the devil was tempting them. They were trying to make their own laws and to live independently of the true lawgiver, the Lord. I think it's rather strange if you think about it that God would make the very first rule a prohibition not to eat of a tree. I mean, why didn't he just prohibit some more obvious bad behavior? Like, why didn't he just tell them, you shall not hurt each other, or you shall not lie or steal? I mean, that, that just seems a little bit more sensible to us. But the reason is, the reason is, 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 is because if God had made the first rule, you shall not lie or steal, well, then he would have been teaching them that the essence of sin is bad behavior, that the essence of sin is doing bad things. But instead, he, he chose a tree and its fruit, which are good things. The first rule for mankind was to not eat a good thing and to trust that God had a good reason for making that rule. Because the essence of sin is not just doing bad things. Friends, the essence of sin is not trusting the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and then taking it upon yourself to provide for your own good as if you were your own God. That's what sin is. That, that flagrant streak of independence is at the heart of every single sin we ever commit. Why do we lie? Why do we tell lies? Because deep down, we don't rest in how God views us and how he sees us. And so we protect our sense of self by twisting the truth to make us appear better than we really are. We lie. Or why do we steal? We, we steal because deep down, we don't trust in God's good provision for our daily bread. And so we literally take it upon ourselves at the expense of others. You see that all sin is rooted in distrust and expressed by defiance. And we really have no one to blame for our sins but ourselves. It's, it's not because of others. It's not because of our circumstances. I mean, just think of it. Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect circumstances. They lived with perfect people, and yet they still fell into sin. Because the problem fundamentally is not out there, external to us. It's in here. It's in our hearts. Which explains the couple's costly choice. That brings us to our fourth point. Let's look at the couple's costly choice by turning back to our text in verse 6. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice how the narrator says the woman saw that the tree was good. That sounds familiar, right? That sounds like the language that God used at the end of every single day of creation as he stood back and saw that it was good. So that's actually God's job. He has the authority to determine what's good, but again, that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion. It's, it's a throwing off of God's rule while attempting to do his job, to now rule your own life, to determine what's good for you. That's what Eve wanted. And that's what Adam wanted as well. I mean, he was there with her. And so that means he fell into rebellion right alongside with her. They both sought to be like God. The tragic irony is that they were already like him. They were made in his image, and yet they were not content with what God has provided, but they sought to independently provide for themselves. They sinned, and the whole bottom fell out. Suddenly, they were alienated from creation, alienated from each other, and alienated from God. The first couple's choice to rebel was truly a costly one. Sin's corrupting effects reverberated throughout creation, and now creation groans for redemption and renewal. Genesis 3 explains for us why we have natural disasters devastating civilization, and this has been happening way before humans began contributing to climate change. Natural disasters have always been occurring. Their corrupting effects of sin also, not just ruined creation, ruined as well human fellowship. Chapter 4 begins recording history's first murder. It ends by referring to more murder, more killing. And then in chapter 5, we have a genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah. And the one key phrase that keeps popping up in that genealogy is, and he died, and he died, and he died and he died. God's warning about surely dying came true. From Genesis 3 onwards, sin, death, and the devil began their ugly reign over humanity. Friends, if you need an explanation for why people hurt each other, for why people are so mean to each other, then look no further than Genesis 3. And if you want an explanation for why you bear this crippling weight of guilt and shame on your, soul, on your shoulders, for why you have that nagging feeling that you're alone, even when you're surrounded by friends, or, or, or that feeling like you're a failure, even though you've, you've had so many achievements, then look no further than Genesis 3. It's because sin has alienated us ultimately from God. Like the first couple, we have been cast out of his presence. All of us are born into this life, born into exile, cut off from our true home and country. And we all know this to be true. We can't escape the feelings of solitude and shame. And that leads us to our fifth and final point. 
to the couple's cheap covering. Adam and Eve tried to atone for their own sins, but their efforts, this cheap covering, is pathetic. It simply won't do. Listen to verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now what's interesting is that the Hebrew word here for naked is different a different Hebrew word than what we saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 25. The only other instance of this particular word in the Pentateuch, that's in the, the first five books of Moses, besides here in Genesis 3, the only other instance is in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 48, and in that particular verse, nakedness is being described as the state of those under God's judgment for not trusting and obeying. And so this Subtle shift in terms, using a different Hebrew word, signals that this couple didn't just come to know intellectually that they were naked. They came to know morally that they were now under God's judgment. And that's why they felt so ashamed, and they tried to cover up that nakedness. What was previously a sign of openness and intimacy between the couple is now a sign of shame and scandal. And so they try to cover themselves. They really try to self-atone for their own sin and shame. Scripture says that they took fig leaves, which I looked it up this, this week. I, I Googled it and I saw some pictures of fig leaves. I'm like, oh, wow, those, are, those could actually work. They're actually pretty large. I read that they're the largest leaves of, of any kind that grow in that area, in the Middle East. And so they were sufficiently large enough to serve as makeshift clothes to cover up their private parts. But while they were successful in hiding their outer shame, that is, you couldn't see their nakedness anymore, their inner shame remained exposed before an all-seeing God. Those leaves were sufficient to cover up their body parts, but they were insufficient to cover up their sin. And so they hid. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they tried to hide from an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present God. Needless to say, it's not their best moment. Now, if this was your first time reading Genesis 3, you would naturally assume that Adam and Eve will surely die at this moment. Because isn't that what God warned? But they don't suddenly keel over. They don't immediately die. Instead, we're told in Genesis 5 that Adam went on living until he was 930 years old. Instead, what we read by the end of Genesis 3 is that God has made the couple garments of skins and he has clothed, clothed them. The Lord covered up their nakedness. He covered up their shame. But not with more fig leaves. Not, not with larger or more durable leaves, but with skins. Animal skins. And that means something had to die to provide those skins. Some animal had to be killed so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. As we've seen, Genesis 3 
answers the existential question of what is the problem. And interestingly enough, the chapter ends with a hint at the biblical narrative's solution. Genesis 3 ends with a substitutionary sacrifice. Blood is shed. A death surely does occur. Sin is atoned. Shame is covered. And the people of God are saved from judgment and granted new life. Friends, this is a glimpse of the gospel. This is a glimmer of good news. Like that early glow in the night sky right before the dawn. Because as the story of Scripture continues to unfold, as you continue reading it, the morning sun eventually does rise when the Son of God comes and he takes on human flesh. And he went on to live the life that we were created to live. And on the cross, he died the death that we deserve to die. He served as the substitutionary sacrifice who covers over our sin, and he does it for good. You see, God agrees with sinners that sin and shame need to be covered. Adam and Eve's impulse to cover up was not a bad impulse in and of itself, but the question is, who's going to do it? Who's going to do the covering up? If we try to do it ourselves, if we try to cover our sin and our shame with our good works, with religious devotion, with just tears of remorse, if we rely on those cheap coverings, then God won't cover it. Instead, our sin and shame will remain, and one day we're going to be exposed. One day we will be condemned for these things. But if we confess our sins now, if we stop our feeble attempts to cover up, then God in his kindness and mercy promises that he himself will cover over our sin and shame with the blood and the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, which will fully and finally shield us forever. But friends, it's time to come out of hiding. Some of you, I'm sure, feel very hard, feel, feel like it's very difficult to approach God right now. You want to hide. You don't want to be in his presence. And even being here is uncomfortable. It's time to come out of hiding. It's time to come to Jesus and to receive his mercy. Let him cover over that sin. Let him cover over that shame. He can surely do it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word that reminds us of not just our sinful condition, not just the shameful state of things that we are living in, but reminds us of your goodness, your mercy, and your provision through Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who shed his own blood to cover over our sin and shame. Oh Lord, restore us and make us new. I pray this in Jesus' name.